What a delight it is to be here. I'm just checking the PA system. Is it working? Cloudy skies and occasional showers will accompany the new weather system that has moved into most of the forecast district. Just checking the PA system. You know, I came from Chicago today and I thought I was going to bring, I, I was going to have to bring my own water. And look at that. Did you see what these folks did up here? I mean, have you ever seen anything as beautiful as this? I am struggling a bit with a cold, and so I told them I needed water, but little did I realize that they were going to put it on a, on a nice white tablecloth and everything else. I do bring you greetings from the city of Chicago, that city of righteousness and love and truth and justice. <laughs> the city where there are only two kinds of people, the quick and the dead. You know, when we were flying in this afternoon, we flew over, uh, you know, you've got lakes and rivers here, and they're all frozen because it's been cold here. You may think that it gets cold here, but I tell you, does it ever get cold in Chicago? Now, you might not believe this, but it was in the Chicago Trib. And if it's in the Trib, you know it's true. Well, you know, you're laughing, but actually in Chicago, we can buy a Sunday Trib on Saturday. I'm serious. You know why? Because the trip makes up the news anyway. <laughs> but according to the trip, one day last winter, not this past winter, it's been a warm winter, but the preceding winter, it was so cold, so cold that some members of the Chicago City Council were actually seen with their hands in their own pockets. It gets cold in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago, there was a young guy who uh, bought a Ferrari and he wanted to have it blessed. So he drove up to the local cathedral and asked the priest. He said, would you bless my Ferrari? The priest said, well, he said, normally we don't bless inanimate objects, but I do want to be relevant. He said, I guess I could bless your Ferrari. But the priest said, I do have a question. Kid said, what? The priest said, uh, what is a Ferrari? Well, the kid couldn't believe it. He zipped into his car. He was so upset, he drove over to the local Baptist church and said, would you bless my Ferrari? The Baptist said, well, normally we don't bless inanimate objects. He said, I guess we could bless your Ferrari. But he said, I do have a question. Kid said, what? Baptist said, uh, what is a Ferrari? Kid couldn't believe it. He zipped over to the local Unitarian church and found the Unitarian minister and said, Would you bless my Ferrari? The Unitarian said, Oh, he said, a Ferrari, 0 to 65 in 4 seconds, 119 miles an hour in second gear, winner of the Grand Prix, three years in a row, the most fantastic car that has ever been built. He said, I'd love to bless your Ferrari. But he said, I do have a question. Kid said, What? Unitarian said, What is a blessing? Well, it's great to be here, and people have already asked me about Billy Graham. Maybe we'll give you a couple of lines tomorrow night. You know Billy? Oh, you have to wait until tomorrow? You can't wait until tomorrow? My goodness, I'm going to do it all tonight. Well, I'll have something for you tomorrow night, too. Is this good water? Is this... Uh... No, let's do it tomorrow night. Maybe I'll give you the invitation tonight. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come, hundreds of you. You simply get up out of your seats, and I want you to come.
the invitation tonight, the message tomorrow. How do you like that? A little backwards like some of those Baptists from Texas, but... You did hear, didn't you, about the, the Baptist who was marooned for 30 years on an island? And uh, somebody found him and said, uh, you know, what's going on here? And they noticed three huts. And they said, what are those three huts? He says, well, this one's my house. He said, well, what's this hut? He said, that's my church. He said, well, what's, what's, what's this other hut? Oh, I said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> Tonight, what I'd like to do is to speak to you on the topic, deceived and loving it. George Stephanopoulos, who for many years was an assistant and an advisor to President Clinton in his book about Clinton, said that after all these years, he is still mystified, he said, because how could a president who is so intelligent, so compassionate, so public-spirited, and so conscious of his place in history, how could he act in such a stupid, selfish, and self-destructive manner? And so that's the question tonight. Why is it that people who otherwise are intelligent, brilliant, maybe even committed Christians at times, act in such a foolish, destructive, and shall we say, evil manner? The answer to that question, quite frankly, is that at the end of the day, we are not governed by logic or reason. Basically, we as human beings are governed or controlled by our desires. We are desire-driven. I remember learning that as a young pastor. A couple would come in with a need or somebody would face a problem and you'd give them a biblical solution and you thought, well, now that I gave the rationale, they should go ahead and obey, only to discover that uh, at the end of the day, they did what they wanted to do anyway. In the immortal words of Woody Allen, the heart wants what it wants. Now, it's very interesting that all communication, therefore, oftentimes affects desires. I read a quotation by the guy who's responsible for MTV, that destructive television outlet that talks about sexuality and, and stirs up sexuality in the minds of children and young people. He said that what we try to do is we try to deal with their emotions, not logic, not reasons, but their desires, because he says, if you have their desires, you have them. I'm reminded of the words in the book of James, and I like the NIV here that says that when a man sins, when a man is tempted, he is dragged away by his own desires and enticed. Is there anyone here tonight who has never had the experience of being dragged away by your own desires and enticed? We are desire-driven. Now, where did this, all this business start from? The Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? By the way, the next verse in Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart. God does know it, but you and I don't. What we'd like to do tonight is to take a look into the human heart to see its deceptions. We take this journey well aware of the fact that we're talking about ourselves. We're not talking about other people. We're talking about you and we're talking about me because we all fundamentally 
are human beings who are deceived and we love our deceptions. It all began in the garden, and soon we're going to be turning to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. In fact, you can turn there now if you wish. But I want you to keep in mind the context in which Adam and Eve were deceived. They were deceived in paradise. What surprises us is the environment in which they found themselves and the environment in which the deceptions took place. For example, uh, Adam and Eve in those days, they were innocent. Uh, they were perfect. They were not perfect like God because they were capable of sinning, but in the best sense of the word, they were innocent. And because of that, uh, they, they lived in an environment that we can only try to imagine. We think, for example, of Eve. Eve lived at a time when she had no insecurities. She did not have to compete with supermodels that grace our newsstands. She did not have to keep her eye on Adam to see whether he was spending too much time with a neighbor lady. Ladies, listen up now. Her husband was perfect. I know you can't relate. I'm simply talking you about the Bible here. And think of the environment in which she was. Uh, did she hunger? She had many trees from which she could eat. I suppose it looked like a jewel store with, with all kinds of food that was piled up, anything that her heart desired. Did she have a penchant for beauty? Well, then, you know, she could look at the beautiful flowers and the gorgeous, beautiful creation that God had made. Don't forget, this was paradise. Did she long to be loved? Is not that what every woman desires, is long to be loved for who she is? She was loved by Adam, and she was loved by God. Now, if you ask the question, well, then why did she turn away from, from God's paradise to choose something else? We've asked a question that no theologian has really been able to answer. It's the same question as to why Lucifer, who was, whose name means light-bearer, would turn away from God at a time when he himself experienced perfection, he was uh, deeply fulfilled in God's presence. The simple answer is we really don't have a good answer. All that we know is that faced with God's boundless beauty and goodness, Adam and Eve chose to sin. And isn't that still true today? We have young people sometimes brought up in the finest Christian homes, brought up in the finest churches. They have the prayers of God's people. They have the best teaching imaginable. And yet they make decisions against God. They turn aside to do their own thing. By the way, there is such a thing as behaviorism, which basically says that people behave the way they do because of their environment. There is some truth to behaviorism because there's no doubt that sometimes children steal because they're brought up in a ghetto where they've had no opportunities and where stealing has become a way of life. If they had a different environment, they might do better. But behaviorism is only a part of the truth. Most assuredly, it is not all of it. Faced in the best environments, even look at some of the children involved in the shootings in our high schools, some of them come from fine homes. And sometimes children from fine Christian homes 
go into deep rebellion and evil against God. Now what we'd like to do is to look at the text tonight and to find out the nature of this deception. And I think it can be described in three different ways. There are three different kinds of deceptions that Eve experiences as she's looking at the fruit of the tree. I assume that you know this passage very well, and so I'll pick it up in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her. He was there with her in the garden, and he ate. Visualize Eve standing here. The first deception, and we could describe it this way, is she chose her perceptions rather than God's instructions. She chose her perceptions rather than God's instructions. She's standing there confronted with two sources of revelation. On the one hand is the word of God which says, In the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. On the other hand, there's the promise of the serpent. In the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And actually, if you sin, you will not move down, said the devil, but rather you will actually step up. Now, I want you to notice that uh, the Bible says when she saw that the tree was good for food. Remember this, in this sense, her perceptions were completely accurate. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the tree inherently. Of course, in and of itself, the tree was good because all things that God created were good. And, and would God create a tree that wouldn't be good? It's unthinkable. And so the issue was not whether the tree was good or bad. We know that it was good. But the issue is that God had placed a penalty should they eat from the tree. It was, I suppose, somewhat arbitrary. God could have chosen any one of the trees of the garden and said, this is the one from which you shall not eat. And so there she is now. She's faced with two sources of revelation we are warning from God and a promise from the serpent. I want you to notice how Eve viewed the tree. Now, God had said that you shall not eat thereof, and if you eat it, you shall die. God was saying, if you eat the tree, you shall do evil. But Eve is there looking at the tree, and notice what she finds. She notices that it is good for the body. It's good for food. It is also good for the soul. It was a beautiful tree. It was also good for the mind, a tree to be desired to make one wise. The key word there is that it was desired, a tree to be desired to make one wise. My translation here says a tree that was desirable. That's our word, isn't it? And, and looking, there at, looking there at the at the tree. What the serpent was saying is, Eve, don't think, feel. 
Go with your desires. Go with the flow. Go with the expectation of what might happen here. Because also, there was this bit of curiosity. If you don't eat of the fruit of the tree, you will never know what really would have happened had you eaten it. And there's only one way to make sure that you know what's going to happen, and that is to eat. Could I say today that Eve has many daughters? I remember counseling a young woman who was actually on a tour, and the tour guide asked if uh, he could uh, go to bed with her. And at first she said no, but as she thought about it for a couple of days, she said to herself, if I don't, I'm going to wonder for the rest of my life what it's going to be like. And so she gave in to the temptation and, of course, regretted it and continues to regret it to this day. I think, for example, of a pastor in Chicago who, who relabels sin as everyone does when he wants to follow his desires. He said that uh, gay marriages, you've heard about this on the news and it's just down the street from Moody Church. He says, he says, gay marriages, who could be against them? Because he doesn't say, now the Bible says they're sin, but I disagree with the Bible, and, and I believe that we should go ahead with these sinful relationships. No. He says, who can oppose them? Because they are holy unions. You see, my friend, sin never comes properly labeled. When the serpent comes to us, he does not tell us really what he's up to. He does not obey the truth in labeling laws. It always comes under a different disguise, always a different name. It is always turned to suit desires. And what happens is that the heart recruits the mind to justify what the heart or the desires want to do. And so it's all cloaked. My, how we cloak our sin. My wife and I have a friend, uh, a couple whom we know, whose daughter has decided to take up and live with a married man who has a couple of children. Her parents have gone to her, friends have gone to her, and they've pled with her. They've said, look, don't you see that this is sinful? Don't you think that this is going to end badly? Don't you see that God has has the best in mind for you here to pull out of that relationship? Does the, does the girl say, oh, thank you so much for telling me. You know, this is, this is exactly what I needed to hear because I understand that every mile we go out from God's will, we have a mile to come back, and I've already done some bad things at this point, obviously having been involved intimately, but, but it's better that I pull out now than later. Thank you. I'm moving back home tomorrow. Is that what she says? No. This young lady says, you know, Mom and Dad, you taught us to be loving and to be caring people. And this is a loving, caring relationship. So who are you to speak against something that is that endearing and caring? And so what happens is the human mind is, is used then to justify what the heart wants to do because remember, Woody Allen, whom I quoted, was right, the heart wants what it wants. And so the first mistake, the first deception of Eve standing before the tree, and Adam ate willingly, of course, and knowingly, 
Uh, he, he knew that this revelation from the serpent was not to be equated with a revelation from God nor to be thought superior. Evidently, Eve thought th that it should. And so he ate knowingly. But, but the first thing is, is that it is a matter of choosing perceptions or desires rather than God's instructions. Standing before the tree, those desires were much more present to her than the instructions that had come from God. Let's uh, identify a second deception. If she chose her perceptions, not instructions, she also chose the serpent and not God. Now, I've already implied that apparently she thought that, uh, that the words of the serpent were more to be believed. Uh, she thought that God had maybe deceived her, that he wanted to keep her down, that he wanted to limit her, whereas if she were to simply choose to obey the serpent, there was a whole limitless opportunity there for self-enhancement and self-development. And so she chose. Isn't it interesting that from now on, not only will our desires govern us, but our desires will now become the basis for our theology. From now on, after the fall, man is always going to redefine God in a way that's going to be consistent with his desires. He's always going to find a, a God that, that is pleased with his behavior, no matter what the behavior is. As Calvin, the great theologian, said that the, the uh, mind of a fallen man is an idle fact constantly manufacturing images of God that are consistent with what he wants to do. And of course, we hear people saying that today. Well, you know, my God would not be opposed to this relationship, and I just want you to know that my God would believe this and so forth. As God is being redefined to suit whatever people want to do. Now, I will point this out very quickly. This would be an entire message, except that, uh, did you know that in these, these verses we have the whole basis for what is called the New Age Movement? All of the doctrines of the New Age Movement in seed form, we've already read here today. For example, pantheism. You say, well, where's pantheism in the text? For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you will be like God. You will be like God. In what sense can a man be like God? In the sense that he's the creator of the sun, the moon, the stars? Unthinkable. But if we say that everything is God, and there's the great one, and, and everything is God, then I am a part of that everything, you see, and so I'm God too. We actually had a photographer at Moody Church claiming that she was God. You remember Shirley MacLaine running out onto Malibu Beach shouting, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Aren't you glad she was wrong? <laughs> in fact, you know, I've often thought that maybe the serpent was speaking directly to Shirley MacLaine here in the text. You'll notice in verse 4, and the serpent said to the woman, you, Shirley, shall not die. So you have pantheism. You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, you have reincarnation. You shall not surely die. If we had time to explain, reincarnation doesn't believe you die. You just keep being recycled. You have relativism. You shall know good from evil without a reference to God. 
You have esotericism. Your eye shall be opened, and every occult religion has the opening of the eyes, the enlightenment that comes through meditation or through drugs. And then you have hedonism, because she saw the fruit of the tree, and it was the desires that made her wise, the desire for her to have it, and she latched on to it. And from now on, theology is going to be built not from the top down, not on God's revelation, but humanistic theology is going to be built from the bottom up as men are constantly going to reshape God. It's been said many times that God created man in his own image, and now man is going to return the favor. And someone has said, we have sheep for wool, we have cows for milk, and we have God to come and to affirm our every craving. So if the first deception was to choose perceptions or desires rather than instructions, the second was, go, was to go with the serpent rather than God, to accept his revelation. And from now on, one of, the most, one of the biggest things that Satan is ever going to do is to be giving people revelations. People are going to be having revelations. I've just finished a series of ten messages at Moody Church on, on discernment. It's entitled, Who Are You to Judge? And I spoke about false teachers and false miracles and false revelations. Why? Because people are saying all kinds of things that God is saying to them. Because from now on, the serpent also is going to speak. Then third, there's another way to describe it, and that is Eve chose time, not eternity. Time, not eternity. You know, when, when God said to Eve and Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. When God said that, have you ever realized the fact that Eve had no idea what death was? There had been no example of death in the whole universe. I'm not even sure that she knew what death was. But standing there before the tree, she had no idea that she was going to trip a series of dominoes, and those dominoes were going to have repercussions throughout all of eternity, bitter, horrendous, ugly repercussions forever and ever and ever. She didn't know that. Because standing there in the garden, she could not foresee World War I and World War II. She could not foresee the Holocaust. She could not see the Arab-Israeli conflict. She could not see and recognize that there was going to be a hell that exists forever. All because she's going to make one decision to eat one fruit from one tree. She had no idea what the future held. I'm sure she thought that if there were any bad consequences, she'd be able to handle them. Because no one can predict the future of those consequences, and she wasn't able to. How much better would it have been if Eve, although we may argue whether or not this was possible given the complexity of God's purposes, but how much better it would have been if she had simply decided to obey God's bare word? God says you shall not eat of it, even though I have this promise from the devil about how wonderful it's going to be. I'm going to go with God no matter what, because at the end of the day, only God knows the full consequences. Only God knows the future. Only he is the one who holds these things in his hand, and I'm going to believe God no matter how foolish it seems in the presence of a serpent who's talking. 
Do you realize today that one of the things that we need to do is to help young people to understand something? It is best to obey God. As a matter of fact, even if you're selfish, you should obey God. Because it's not only, not only is it best for God that you obey Him, it is best for yourself that you obey Him. Because, because God holds the consequences and the future in His hands. And so obedience to God is the best thing. You never know where the consequences of sin will pop up. You know, when you try to hide the consequences of sin, it's like trying to keep a basketball that's full of air in the ocean. Somehow it comes up over here and you push it down over here and it's over here and it's over here and it's over here and you want to control the whole thing and you just can't. Consequences of sin are haphazard, unpredictable, and oftentimes land in places that you and I would have never even suspected. We simply cannot predict the consequences of sin. I remember uh, one day in Chicago, it was in July or August possibly, I ran out of windshield washer fluid. And I thought, well, you know, regular water is better than nothing. And so I just filled it with water. And that was fine. But then I remember one November <laughs> hitting that windshield washer button and suddenly a film of ice covered the whole windshield. That's the way sin is. That's why the Bible says, He who covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. And God has his way of having sin bubble to the top, particularly sins with which we do not want to deal. Now, what I'd like to do is to take this passage of Scripture and apply it to sexual temptations for just a moment. Now, I need to explain that Adam and Eve's temptation was not sexual. But I think it is in the realm of sexuality that we are most willingly deceived. It is here that we are deceived because we want to be deceived. We put ourselves in the path of temptation because our sexuality teaches, uh, touches the deepest part of us. Therefore, it becomes the area in which we are most easily led astray. The Apostle Paul, when talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, said, Do not be deceived. And then he talks about all those who cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, and Paul uses that word, don't be deceived, because, because you, and I, you and I, we long to be deceived. We are deceived and we love to be deceived. We tell ourselves lies that we want to believe. First of all, we rename the sin, and then we downplay the consequences. Let me give you two lessons that Eve teaches us in the experience of the garden that teaches us about our sexuality. First of all, number one, we've already emphasized it. Because you can't foresee the consequences of sin does not mean that there will not be any. Let me say that again. Just because you can't foresee the consequences of sin does not mean that there won't be any. There are people who are involved in immorality of various sorts who say, I can contain the consequences. We have decided that we are going to keep our sin hidden. We are armed with a full pack of lies to make sure that if anybody suspects we have a good alibi, we're going to put the lid on this and we're going to be able to manage this sin <laughs> and even though you think you can predict the consequences of sin you simply can't 
There was a minister who at one time was a friend of mine, not a close friend, but I knew him. We were together at conferences, who left his wife and fell in love with a woman in his church, and he told some people that he spent hours in prayer over this, and he pled with God, and, and he asked God, and finally, after hours and hours of prayer, God showed him that he should do this. Now, can anyone doubt his sincerity? Can anyone doubt but that he did indeed spend hours of prayer? I, I, I'm sure it is. You know, if you want something bad enough and you stay on your knees long enough and you plead with God long enough, finally, from somewhere, someplace, you'll get the peace you want to disobey God. One of the reasons, by the way, this is uh, no extra charge, we won't even take another offering tonight, I don't think is that when you get two people together, you know, there was a revival movement that was really effective of the Lord, but as a result, there was, there was immorality that took place because if you get a man and a woman who are not married to each other and they become soulmates spiritually, the desire for physical intimacy is going to be strong and overwhelming. And so we need to be very, very careful in this area. Let me give you a second lesson even beautiful fruit, if forbidden by God, incurs judgment. Even beautiful fruit, if forbidden by God, incurs judgment. I mention this because there were two lesbians from Christian families. And here, I'm not preaching against lesbianism and homosexuality as if it's the only sins. My whole mind and heart was greatly changed many, many years ago when I spoke at an Exodus conference and you talked to these people you know that about 85% um, of all lesbians were molested by men. So let's not, let's not be pointing fingers here, except to say this, that these two ladies, they said to their parents, our relationship is so beautiful that, that we know that it is the most beautiful thing there could possibly be. In fact, they added, we're more certain about its beauty than we are about everything, anything else. Well, it's got to be said lovingly, but somebody has to say it, that even something that's beautiful, if forbidden by God, incurs his judgment. Nobody can argue with the fact that the fruit of the tree was beautiful. And I've tried to talk men out of adulterous affairs, and some of them say, you know, I've lived so long in this wilderness, and now I've found an oasis. Our relationship is beautiful. Can you argue with that? No, I guess it is beautiful. <laughs> the tree was beautiful too. What happened after the fall? Well, after Adam and Eve sinned, you know the rest of the story. They, uh, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and make themselves loin coverings. And then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, notice, and I was naked. In other words, I was ashamed, and I hid myself. From now on, after the fall, men and women are going to be gods. There was some truth to what the devil had to say. But everybody's going to be his own god. 
And I'm going to be my God, and because I'm my, I'm my own little God, I'm going to protect my turf. And you're going to be over here, and you're going to be protecting your turf. And the person over here is going to be protecting his turf. And God help us if our turfs collide. Because now narcissism is going to be born. Narcissism means that I'm going to interpret everything in relationship to myself. All the information that comes to me is going to be dissected on the basis of two fundamental questions. Number one, how does this make me look? Number two, how does this this make me feel the true narcissist is going to say this here it is his uh, he says to his wife he says you know mrs. Jones down the street boy that was good cake she baked and the narcissistic woman is going to say well, what about the cakes that I bake you never comment about the cakes that I bake why are you commenting about and, and so arguments are going to begin I can imagine it here in the garden Adam speaks first. He's talking to his wife and says, why in the world did you eat of the fruit of the tree? Didn't you understand that God said we're not supposed to eat of it? And she said, I can't believe I'm hearing that from you. You were standing right beside me. If you were such a big man and you thought I wasn't supposed to do it, why didn't you tell me not to? The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I want you to notice what Adam said to God. He says, he says, the woman, watch my hands now, the woman whom thou, whom thou gavest me, this weak-willed woman whom you gave to me, she took of the tree. And then what's a guy supposed to do when this happens? Of course I took of the tree and ate. I want you to notice that Adam blamed his wife even though there wasn't a chance in the world that he had married the wrong one. Did you notice that? <laughs> You'll notice that they sowed fig leaves. From now on, appearance is going to be everything. And especially in rich cult cultures, the fig leaves that you wear, how much of the body should be shown, how much of it should not be shown, the shape of the body, how you come across to people is going to be an obsession with people. Everyone is going to be jockeying for, for opportunity. And if you outdo me, I will try to do you in. I will, I will uh, if you do better than I, you, I will sustain narcissistic, uh, narcissistic damage. And as a result of that, I'll do you in when I have a chance. And all of this is going to become, self-protection is now going to become an absolute obsession. So nobody is going to know what's inside of me. In world A, I can be a Sunday school teacher, a nursery worker. I can do all of these things and have an impeccable reputation. In world B, I can be an adulterer. I can be molesting my daughter. But world A and world B are not going to be allowed to, to ever meet. And I'm going to compartmentalize my life like this. And woe betide the person who wants to bring me to the light because I will destroy them. I will do everything to make sure that I'm protected by myself. And, and I will hurt all the people around me and I will destroy the people around me in order to be protected. That's the nature of the human animal. By the way, I was talking about you, wasn't I? <laughs> and me. Not somebody else, us. I don't know if I should talk about this tomorrow. I know that one thing was listed. I don't know if that's in concrete or not. I was thinking of talking about the controlling personality tomorrow, but then it dawned on me there might not be any in Iowa. <laughs> As a result of the fall, listen to me carefully now. As the result of the fall, it will be absolutely impossible for us to see ourselves in true light. 
We will even destroy people around us to protect ourselves. And we'll be obsessed with that protection. And, and we, won't, we won't know how we come across to other people. You know, most people have no idea how they come across to other people. I see this all the time. Somebody's working over here and he's doing a very poor job and he thinks that if he leaves, the company's going to collapse. And you say, you know, where's this guy coming from? I mean, doesn't he see that he's incompetent? No, he doesn't see that he's incompetent. He's the hub that runs the whole wheel. And, and you remember out on the farm, and this is, gets pretty close once you get to Iowa, Remember the skunk? The skunk emits all of that odor. And so far as we know, to himself, he thinks it's Chanel number five. <laughs> what is the answer to all of this, folks? The answer to all of this is light. Light. Light means that I allow the light of God's Word and the blessed Holy Spirit of God to search me. It means that I spend time in God's presence and give Him plenty of time, not a little prayer, that I give Him plenty of time to expose me in His holy presence, and by His grace I deal with everything that He brings to my attention. You see, light reveals who we are. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You have fellowship with me, I have fellowship with you, but we also have fellowship with God because, because light means that, that the hidden places are exposed and oh, how, how difficult it is because of shame and other things, how difficult it is to be brought into the light and to be exposed. It reveals who we are. Light also reveals where we are going. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. But if we claim to have life or to walk in the light and, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. I feel somewhat intimidated tonight preaching with all of these counselors present and a row of people here who've done so, many, so much more counseling than I have. But I would think that at the end of the day, what we as counselors have to do is through our own humility and brokenness to be so broken that we can take other people and help them bit by bit to come to the light of God and expose the things of darkness and that might be things that they have done, but it also might be things that have been done against them. Because either way, light brings healing. And so, and so we, walk, we walk in truthfulness. We walk in truthfulness and light even when it costs us, even when it costs us perhaps our reputation, even when it costs us money, even when it costs us indicting. Uh, we might indict ourselves. Not here, but I'm sure at Moody Church. There are probably people present who have done things that are crimes for which they'd have to go to jail if it were exposed. And uh, I'm thinking of a man, for example, who filled out a form that said that he was um, injured while on work. And so he's getting workman's compensation till the day he dies. 
Actually, it didn't happen at work. It happened when he was uh, out hunting. The minister, this was another situation, not mine, but the minister said to him, uh, said to him, you know, don't you think you should come to the light and go to the compensation board and admit the truth? He said, are you crazy? Do you think I want to go to jail? I know this has to be said lovingly, but there are some things that are worse than jail. And one of them is to be out of fellowship with a living and a true holy God. Do you remember, I think it was Robert Fulcom, Fulgrim, I may be mispronouncing that, whose book, uh, Everything I Ever Knew I Learned in Kindergarten, was, I think, a bestseller a few years ago. In it, he tells the story of, of um, kids playing in leaves and how the kids would play hide-and-go-seek, and there'd always be some kid who would hide so well that nobody could find him. And Fulgrim says that he was looking out the window one day and he saw this kid hide so well that nobody could find him. And, you know, the kids eventually gave up. And he said, I felt like going out there and shouting, Get found, kid! And scaring the living daylights out of him. We live in a world with such brokenness and with such sin, don't we? As a result of that, people are hiding and it's your responsibility and mine to lovingly lead them and to say, it's time to get found. From behind the trees, from behind the fig leaves, from a life of shame, get found. And the scripture says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. If sin is darkness, the gospel and God's word is the light that must shine upon our hearts and those to whom we minister. Let's pray. Our Father, we are such deceitful creatures. We think, Father, of how we tell ourselves all kinds of rationalizations and lies. Oh, Father, deal with us graciously and mercifully. Let the light of your blessed spirit and the light of your word shine in our hearts. Make us honest people. As Pastor Bubeck mentioned, people of integrity. And Father, I pray for everyone listening to this message, may all of us be willing to pay whatever price is necessary to come to the light. Oh, grant us that grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.